So this morning we are continuing in Joshua, like Jesus said, and we are going to do a big chunk of scripture this morning, okay? So we're going to start all the way back in Joshua 12 and not finish until we get to Joshua 16. I think I should read it all. That'll be fun for us. Maybe not. Um, so I'm going to read little bits of it as we go through. And um, the title of this morning is Wholehearted Happiness. Now, I'm pretty sure that all of us would like to be happy, wouldn't we? I don't think there's somebody here who would say, ah, I don't really want happiness. Nah, not for me. It's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it? Sometimes you come across people who are really happy, and those happy people, sometimes they're the type of people who, once you get to know them, you realise they're not actually that happy. They're very happy on the outside, and when you first meet them, they're very extroverted, excited about life. Six months down the line, you realise, ah, actually, there's more going on there. They're not maybe as happy as they seem. Some are really happy for a time, and they genuinely are. But it's circumstantial happiness. They are happy until something happens in their lives that, that blows the world apart. They were happy because uh, their family life was going well. They were happy uh, because uh, they had lots of money and they could go on holidays and they had the big house and they felt successful. They, they'd reached some of their goals and so they were happy. But as soon as some of those things start to get chipped away in their lives, you realise, oh, maybe they weren't that happy. But there are a few people who I've met who seem to be happy most of the time and, and even in times that are challenging and difficult, you might even call times that are unhappy, they still have this contentedness about them, what Christians might call a joy about them. There's something about them that, that means that no matter what's going on in their lives, there is still this underlying kind of unshakable happiness. And there's something I've noticed about this last group of people. They are a people who don't only say that they are willing to sacrifice for God, but they do it. We've got friends who uh, live down in a place called Bedford, and they, they felt a, a real calling to open up their house to strangers. So a real strong gift of hospitality. And people are constantly going through their house, like all the time. Turn up at their house, and there are people there. And you're like, who are these people? And, you know, they've met them the day before or whatever. There's just, there's just people coming to their house all the time. Now, that's not for everyone, but they felt that God had called them to that. And so because they felt that God called them to that, they felt, actually, we need to be faithful to that. And, and that's what they started to do. And they're so happy. I mean, that would drive me crazy. People in my house all the time. I need a break. Can you just shut the door to my bedroom? Please stay out. They're happy. They're contented in God. Then we've got other friends who uh, moved to a place called Manenburg, which is a township in South Africa. And they moved there because they felt the call of God on their lives. And now um, she, the, the wife, has set up a, a nursery in Manenburg and serves uh, the local children in Manenburg. And then uh, the husband, Nick, he has set up his own charity that helps 
men who have been addicted into work. And it's just an extraordinary thing. They live in this dusty township with electricity that goes on and off all the time. And they, they live like the people around them. He's a Cambridge graduate. She's very gifted and can do just about anything. And there they are, living in Man- Manenberg. And do you know what? They're so happy. They're so happy. Some, one of the happiest couples I know. Um, we also have friends who uh, had this calling on their life to adopt. And they've adopted quite difficult children. Children who have come from really difficult backgrounds. Things have happened to them that mean that life is just difficult for those kids. And they've adopted these kids, brought them into their lives. And don't get me wrong, it is tough. Like we knew them really well, so we were in their lives a lot. And it is tough. But they're contented in God. They're happy in God. There's this, there's this correlation between I'm going to lay my life down for God and happiness. We are called to be both joyful people and obedient people. People of celebration and wholehearted submission. And as we'll find out this morning, you cannot have one without the other. Not genuinely, anyway. Maybe for a time, but not genuine joy, not genuine obedience. The two come together and there's this contentedness that comes in God. So today, Joshua 12 through 16. So do flick there. We're not going to read the whole thing. You'll be very happy to hear. Um, But we are going to read Joshua 12 verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Then I'll um, move on and read verse 7 as well. Okay, so if you do have your Bible with you, jump there to Joshua. By the way, as I go there, if you want to catch up on where we've been through Joshua, you can get all the sermons online. Uh, just go to glasgowgrace.org and then go to talks and you'll be able to find them there. Okay, so if you're away on holiday, there's different things going on in your lives, uh, just know you can grab the sermons there through them. So Joshua 12 says this, These are the kings of the land whom the Israelites had defeated and whose territory they took over east of the Jordan from the Ammon Gorge to Mount Hermon, including all the eastern side of, of the Arabah. Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, he ruled from Aaron on the rim of the Arning Gorge, from the middle of the gorge to the river Jabbok, which is a border of the Ammonites. This included half of Gilead. And then it goes on listing all of these places that they conquered. Then it gets to verse 7. And it says this. Here is a list of the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan, from Balgad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which rises towards Selt. Joshua gave their lands as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their tribal divisions. So here we have it in in chapter 12, a list of 31 kings and 31 tribes in 31 verses. And you might think, this is consigned, surely, to the dull lessons of ancient history. But not true. Not true. 
It's a retelling of what God has done. A remembrance, a celebration of victory. This list does something similar to what we've already seen in Joshua. It does something similar to the 12 memorial stones and the Passover that they took after they had gone through the Jordan, after God had parted the waters and gone through from the east to the west and they stopped and they remembered what God had done. They celebrated what God had done. And this, this list does something similar. It remembers what has God done. Let's declare what God has done. He's been fighting our battles, so let's declare it. What's he done? Here it is. He's defeated them. Defeated them. Defeated them. Defeated them. Defeated them. He's done all that he said he would do. At school, I found history a little dull. A little boring. Some of you might have loved it. I'm sure lots of you find it dull as well. Now, I mean proper dull. Like, I'm counting to ten. If I'd counted to ten, like within ten seconds of the lesson starting, I would be daydreaming about scoring goals in a Champions League final for Celtic. I mean, I was... Sorry if you're not of that persuasion. But I was dreaming, not listening at all. But one day we started a new topic. World War II. Suddenly, it wasn't medieval history, and it wasn't ancient history, and suddenly I I felt kind of connected to it. I had people in my family who I knew of only two generations previously who had fought in the war, so I'm thinking, oh, I can connect with that. I also realised that the world we live in today in many ways is shaped by what happened during that war. And so there was a reason, wasn't there? There was a reason that I found it interesting because it made an impact on my life. Yes, I'm selfish. It has to make an impact on my life before I'm interested, right? But that's true for so many of us. When we're listening to teaching or we're listening to history, we want to know how does that actually impact our lives? How on earth does that make an impact on me? And uh, one of the, the real breaking points in World War II, one of the, the moments I found most satisfying was D-Day and Operation Overlord. That, that was the point that you, when you read through the history of World War II, you feel like that is the point where it looks like the Allies are going to win. Before that, you're really, you're, you're not sure. Are they going to win? Could, could they win? The Nazis look so strong. But at that point... Europe is broken and and victory is on its way. Let me read a letter to you from a paratrooper with this genuine name, right? This is genuinely his name. Captain Criss Cross. (laughs) Brilliant. What a name. Cruel parents. Captain Criss Cross writes this back to his parents. He says, Dear folks, at present I'm lying in the sun in a very pleasant orchard in northern France. And... A force of about 500 fortresses has just gone overhead. I must be tired. Orchard. Did I say orchid? That's a plant. Orchard. Most encouraging. Apart from an occasional noisy gun or mortar popping off nearby. I've written pooping. I'm glad I didn't read that. And an even more rare burst of counterfire. It is almost as peaceful as the orchard at home. 
I've just changed my underclothes, good detail, and washed my feet for the first time since I left England. And today we bought a few bottles of wine and intend, if all is quiet, to have a little dinner party this evening. Because when we are busy, we get a bit split up and the officers don't get much chance to see one another. Five of us, though, are mucking in this evening and we have some potatoes and a rabbit to thicken up the stew and some onions with, uh, with which to flavour some. What we would really like is some bread. Getting awfully tired of these biscuits. But the army bakers are not here yet and the local French don't have any to spare. My platoon is on very good form and we all get on very well together. The five new blo- blokes I had shortly before we left are pretty good and with one exception, fitted in well. The exception is no longer with us. Jerry saw to that. <laughs> but he has not dealt with us too severely, touch wood. It is now time for the party. And Jerry seems to be giving little trouble this evening. So that's all for a while. Love to you all, Chris. Now they've achieved this great victory. They know that the time has come for rest. They have the upper hand and they will no doubt march on through Europe and eventually reach Berlin and they can have the VE celebrations when it actually happens and um, it's all done. But here's the thing, they're parting, they've had a great victory, it seems obvious that they're going to win, but the reality is hundreds of thousands of people still died after that point. Not just soldiers, but civilians and people in extermination camps. The war was still going on. There was a great victory, but there were still many battles to be fought. In chapter 12, the Israelites found themselves at a similar point. The final verse in chapter 11 declares this, rest from war. Then they celebrate. They put together this list. They celebrate what God has done. They've been victorious in the land. And so the victories that have taken place so far east of the Jordan and west of the Jordan are recorded here as a great celebration of what God has done. But now in 13.1, so skip forward to chapter 13, verse 1, a new part to the Israelite story begins. And it says this. When Joshua had grown old... The Lord said to him, you are now very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. This is the land that remains and then it is listed. You see, Moses' death had marked the beginning of the book, hadn't it? Do you remember back? Moses' death marks this point that Joshua begins because the sin of the previous generation is lifted, the curse is lifted at the death of Moses. And at that point is when God says to Joshua, stand up, be courageous, be very courageous. It's time for me to lead you through the waters. It's time to to go through the Jordan, to to go into the land that I've promised you. And as we said time and time again through the series, This isn't just about Joshua. This isn't just about the Israelites. This is about something so much more. This isn't just about Moses. It's about God's promises that follow a thread through scripture to Jesus. The king of heaven who came near to 
to die for us and declare victory, not just over powerful tribal powers inside a physical boundary, but about his advance in the whole world, his victory over the whole world and his victory over principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of the world against spiritual wickedness in high places. In other words, to have authority over the whole earth, all the nations. So this isn't just about the land in Israel. This is about the whole world. This is about what Jesus has come to do in his victory over sin, Satan and death. And so today we meet here to celebrate. Now you might not know that, but we are here to celebrate. Every Sunday we come here to celebrate. That's why we meet on a Sunday. We meet on a Sunday because this is a day of rest. And a day of rest isn't just about not doing certain things. A day of rest is actually about entering into the land. It's about entering into the presence of God. It's about entering into a place where we remember what God has done. We are here to celebrate that we can have new life in Jesus. This wasn't just about the honey. It wasn't just about the wine. It wasn't just about all this fruitful land that they get to farm in now. It was about this period of time. Because Jesus, same name as Joshua, Hebrew and Greek, was really the greater Joshua. And really the greater Moses, his death, and then his leading through his resurrection, through the waters, is our salvation. And now we celebrate because our sins are forgiven. Far as the east is from the west, our sins are no more. You're free. There is freedom in this room. And we should celebrate. We should be full of joy. And we now can know him. We can have a relationship with God. Celebrate because Jesus has come and said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The thief has been defeated. Jesus is alive. And so are you. Blaise Pascal philosopher and mathematician. Absolute genius. This is an entry to his diary. 1654. Monday the 23rd of November. Feast of St. Clement, apparently. From about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight. Fire! God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars. Certitude, heartfelt joy, Peace, God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Joy, 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 tears of joy, 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 joy. 52 times he writes, joy, unspeakable joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him.
Guys, he gets it. He knows God. He's pursued happiness in all kinds of places and ways. Blaise Pascal in a moment gets it. Joy. Jesus has made a way for me to know God forever and ever. And you will never have to be separated from him. Some of us, however, are asking this. How can I celebrate? People I love still die. I have cancer or someone in my family has cancer and God's not healed to that cancer. I have dysfunctional relationships with a spouse or a relative that just hang heavy on me all the time. How am I supposed to be a person of joy? Surely this isn't it. Surely this can't be it. Sure, I've experienced something of that joy, but now this is hard. What about now? And in some ways you would be right. Because this is not it. And it wasn't it for Joshua and Israel either at this point. If you're sharp, you will have realised something. Not all of the places that they were supposed to have conquered were listed. They had not been obedient to God in every battle. They had disobeyed God's command to remove all of the Amorites from the land. Now remember this is a judgment passage and it stands as an example to something that is much greater than it. And that is that for 400 years the Amorites have been unrepentant. God has warned them again and again and again and again. And so the land was supposed to be a place where judgment takes place and through grace for the Israelites and for Rahab and for the others that we have seen joined in to Israel and to the blessings of God to the nations, we see that the land is supposed to be holy, purified. And the Israelites have failed to do that, if not been obedient. And so then the battles weren't finished. Now, isn't that true of us? So, although this is where the, the comparison has changed slightly, because actually when Jesus came, he defeated sin, death, Satan, forever. And it was perfect, complete. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. But until he returns... We are in this time where the world is still broken. Darkness and sin are still present. And actually he's given us a mission to go on as we go with him with his advancing kingdom across the world. So in the same way that the land was not yet purified for what it was made to be for the worship of God with God at the centre, the same is true of the world. Same is true in our life, the people around us, and even in us. So like God reminds us in chapter 13, 6, we need to remember that this kingdom is advancing 
And it is him who is fighting the battles. The commander of the Lord's army, God himself, who is fighting their battles, fighting our battles. And God says in verse 6, I myself will drive them out. Guys, joy leads to obedience, not the other way around. And we can only really see that properly when we flip it and we see that obedience leads to joy. And the two together are not really supposed to be separated. So let me read chapter 14, verse 6. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and the Kenizzites said to him, You know that the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people sink. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land in which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and of your children forever. Because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Obedience to God cannot just be worked up. It overflows from our newfound joy that is given to us by God fighting battles on our behalf. And that ultimately is Jesus on the cross who died for us and he gives us this free gift of grace. And now we can know God, not by our own merit at all, but only through what Jesus has done. But, as we'll find out in a minute, that's not the end of the story when it comes to obedience. Those 12 spies that Caleb was one of, and they went into the land all those years before, they went and they saw that the tribes, the kings, had all these resources and these fortified cities, and they had these mighty armies. And they melted, they crumbled before it. They came back, they gave the report. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back, believing God could do it. The other ten, they came back saying, no chance. No way are we going in there right now. We will get smoked. We're not doing it. The land was about getting back to a place reserved for worshipping God alone. A place with Eden-like qualities where God's people would get back to doing what they were designed to do. Worship God. That's what we're made to do. Worship God. That's where happiness is found. Worshipping God in the presence of God where we were made to be. A place that's holy, set apart for God. And that's what Jesus did for us. He made us By his death, dealing with our sin, by his resurrection, giving us new life, and then by being raised up on high and pouring out his Holy Spirit, he poured out his Holy Spirit on us. And what are we now? We're Eden-like. 
We're temples. The Holy Spirit fills us. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. We are reserved for God. We are set apart for God. We're supposed to be holy. Holy, holy people. The vision for the land was God. And when we become Christians, the vision of our own lives changes too. We once wanted to pursue anything but God. Our whole being was changed from wanting to run after all of the things the world offers us. It tells us that's the way to happiness. To suddenly, actually deep down, our deepest desire when we give our lives to Jesus changes. And it suddenly is about Him. Our whole vision becomes not about how we can get ourselves happy, but about going to God who is the source of life and joy and happiness forevermore. And so our vision for life is about God. And our desires become about the things of God. That isn't to say, however, that there aren't tough moments where you get scared, where you get tempted to look at the land, the things God is calling you to, and think, I can't do that. That looks better to me right now than God. We must keep our vision on God, especially in the moments when temptation comes, especially when it's gloomy and it's hard, especially when those moments come where you just feel powerless because the only source of power that you need in that moment is God. The writer to the Hebrews said this, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Guys, joy brings about obedience, but obedience also brings about joy. When we're tempted to stop reading God's word, when we decide to prioritize other things over prayer, we need to turn our eyes back to our vision, God, Jesus. I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but that can be hard. And our passage here, Caleb is now 85 years old. He's old, advanced in years. And yet his vision was still focused on God. He still believed that he could drive out the formidable Amalekites tribes from the land. How does he have that kind of faith? How does an old man like that have that kind of faith? Is it that he feels like, hey, I've still got it? No, (laughs) it's not. Verse 12, he says he could do it, provided the Lord was with him. And when that is how we look at God, God being our vision and God being our help, the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus even calls him our helper, big hint there. That's how we face life in its mess and its complications and its frustrations. And we can know God is with us, in us, fighting our battles. Battles against sin that we struggle to shake. Battles against illness. Battles against doubt. Battles where the enemy is having a go at us. Battles to love. We must remember, 
We're a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means we have access all the time to the power of the Spirit. That means the one Jesus called the helper is with us. In that dark, gloomy moment, in that moment where you feel powerless, in that moment where you feel like you just can't do it, that's especially the moment you need to be reminded that you need God. You need him to help you in every way and that he lives in you. That's the grace of God to you. You could be doing something horrendous. But if God has already said, you are a child of mine. If you've already given your life to Jesus, if you know that you have done that, even in that moment, you can turn to him and, and say, Lord, I don't want to do this. I want to I make my vision about you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will give you all you need to resist it. The reason you can be obedient to God's call in your life is what he has done for you and will do for you, but it's also what God is doing for you today. He promises he will be with you and being with him is your new nature's deepest desire. As you look to Jesus, you want to be set apart for God. And so do the things that help you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Do you see this? Do you see how we're kind of bouncing back and forth between how this joy that is given to you in the gospel and this obedience that brings you back to the same vision that's already there for you, that actually obedience and joy are always connected. Now, what we have to not do is pursue religion. And that's the temptation, is that you, you bounce so far that way into obedience that suddenly it becomes all about works and you feel like God's not pleased with you because you've not done the work. But think about the example we just gave where you're doing this horrendous thing. The grace of God is still in your life. And if I say to you in that moment, a good idea would be to pray, is that religion? No! It's a means of you seeing that God is better. That's what we need to see. That is the type of obedience, the type of obedience that Caleb had, the type of obedience that we need. It's a type of obedience that goes back to God because God is better. Because our vision is him. Our vision is Jesus. We make our whole lives about him. And those people that I talked about at the beginning who are contented in God, they're happy in God, they're also wholehearted in their worship and obedient to God. And yes, they make mistakes, but they get that the grace of God means they can keep turning back to him. They can keep looking to him. They can keep fixing their eyes on Jesus, the perfecter of their faith. God has changed us. And he's given us a mission. And he spells it out to the disciples. He says this. Let me finish with this. Remember, when we come to faith, our desires change. And our desires, our deepest desire, the thing that is best for us, where we're going to be most happy, most content, most full of joy, even in the hard things, is being joined to the mission of God. Is being joined to the things of God. 
It says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, into the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we know that that is by the Spirit. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Guys, we can be full of joy and obedience at the same time. Because God is our source of happiness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord, would you be the the object of our lives, the vision of our lives. Forgive us, Lord, when we even make things like church the vision. Lord, our, our vision must be you. Our vision for life, our vision for happiness, our vision for goodness in our lives must be you. Because you are the only one who can satisfy. We come to these rivers of living water panting for truth. Panting for a place where we can be happy. And we know that you have provided it. That you have provided the water that satisfies. You are that water, Jesus. Thank you. And so God, I pray this morning as we've come in probably buffeted by the world in another week where we're convinced to stay away from your word, where we're convinced to stay away from prayer, where we're convinced that other things are more attractive. Lord, forgive us. Help us now by your grace to see that you are calling us back to you. The vision of our whole being should be you because there is where we're made to be with you and I thank you so much that through Jesus we have been made temples of the Holy Spirit and so you fill us now so come I pray reveal yourself with great power this morning as we continue to worship would you reveal yourself in new ways to us would you fill people afresh with the power of your spirit would you come and fall on us why don't we why don't we stand together we'll just invite God to come Holy Spirit, come rest on us now, we pray. Thank you. You can celebrate because of what Jesus has done. Would you make Jesus so great in our hearts right now? Fall afresh in us. Give us confidence in you. Help us to be as confident as Caleb was in your promises and who you are. And I pray now that we would simply just enjoy you. We just want to enjoy you, God. So we come into your presence, Lord, and we we ask, Holy Spirit, come in power. Come, Holy Spirit.
Lord, I thank you that we have this glorious reminder in the Lord's Supper and Communion of what you have done. It's better than this list of 31 kings because Jesus, you came to do so much more than that. And so thank you that we can come freely to the table no matter what we've done this week because God, you offer us forgiveness by your blood, through your body, nailed to that cross. The very essence of wholehearted obedience was you, Jesus, going to the cross. And so we pick up our cross as we come to take communion together. We take that bread and we dip it in the wine and we say, Lord Jesus, thank you. And Lord Jesus, help us to be more like you by the power of your spirit. We love you, God. Amen.